Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. So I think both of us share a favorite uh, intro scene to a movie. We're talking about The Thing, John Carpenter's oh, yes. remake of The Thing at the beginning. 1982. Yeah, not the not the recent one from, what was it, like 2011, mm-hmm. which also had the dog in it. Yeah, and, uh, I, and I have to admit, I, I enjoyed that. I did uh, too. Sequel, prequel, remake yeah. Uh, deal. Yeah, I, I didn't hate it as much as some other people did. But that movie opens with a dog running across an Arctic landscape mm. with a helicopter chasing it and people shooting from the helicopter at the dog, trying to kill this dog desperately. And it arrives at an American camp and they can't figure out why. I believe they're Norwegian, right? Yeah, I believe the they're shouting in Norwegian, yeah. is raging about this dog, trying to kill it. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous opening scene because it, it it's you start with a chase. Everyone's yeah. interested in a chase, yeah. and then it seems so bizarre. Like, why? Why is this poor innocent uh, doggy? There's even a point where they, aren't they like throwing grenades at it from a helicopter. They may have. It's yeah. been a while since I've, I've seen it. I definitely remember the shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the reason why we're bringing this up is because, of course, we're big horror monster fans here. And what we're going to talk about today is probably the closest thing in real life we have to a horrific monster like the thing uh, that infects human bodies and apparently can now infect dog bodies just like the thing did. Yeah, we see a similar situation playing out with the guinea worm because in the thing, of course, uh, this parasitic shape shifting organism from another world or another string of worlds has been almost defeated at this Norwegian outpost. And it's fled the, the place in this dog. And this is its, its vessel to try and reach an, another place of safety. And they're yeah. trying to kill it first. Uh, and we, we actually see this scenario taking place uh, to a certain extent with the game. One of my favorite things about this, which you covered this uh, previously for How Stuff Works Now in a, in a short video that you, uh, you out there can find both on now.howstuffworks.com, but also on our uh, social media channels. We shared it. Uh, you did an article and a video, and this is sort of our deeper dive into that. Uh, but you had this great sentence in there that I loved. You said, man may be, may indeed be the warmest hiding place, but man's best friend will do in a pinch. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite tagline for this. Well, so. because, uh, uh, man is the warmest hiding place. Is, yeah. Uh, is a tagline. It's from the thing. thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, and indeed that's, Kind of what's going on here. Yeah. So it also reminds me the guinea worm, uh, and <laughs> this brought, it just brought up a bunch of horror movie sci-fi kind of possibilities mm-hmm. to me when we started really researching how this thing works. Also made me think of Alien 3, uh, in, in one of the cuts. There's two different cuts of that movie, but in one of them, the xenomorph infects a dog instead of a human but being. That's right. And that, that is supposed to explain why it takes this more, um, a canine, form, yeah, the sleeker, four-legged uh, uh, morphology. It has a different biology somehow mm-hmm. because it, uh, it, the parasite grew in a dog uh, and burst out of a dog. And we are talking today about a parasite that also grows in a dog and bursts out of it. Although, from all the research we've done, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of real. Uh, like journal published science about the dog infestation with guinea worms. So we're not quite sure actually if the guinea worms that come out of these dogs are all that different, uh, physically than they are when they come out of human beings. But the, the process is certainly different. Yeah. 
Indeed. So let's let's back up. We'll just talk for a minute about the organism itself, and then we'll get more into this human versus guinea worm fight. We're talking about the, the guinea worm, Draconculus medinensis, which is a nematode or round worm. Uh, and we're talking about a, a pretty ancient critter here, uh, a lineage of organisms that uh, that are honed by up to a billion years of evolution. Now, the, this is it, the actual estimates here vary depending on who's uh, doing the research. But um, OSU zoologist George uh, Poinier, uh, who literally wrote the book on nematodes, uh, says that the oldest known nematodes are from around 400 million years ago. Uh, but he but he theorizes they probably date back around a billion years, meaning yeah. that they'd be the be one of the oldest of all life forms emerging before almost all other animals and just after bacteria, protozoa and fungi. Yeah. So one thing that I read said that the ancient Egyptians were dealing with this. We we, we know that we found it in their in their writings and they had some terrible treatments for how <laughs> to deal with what we today call guinea worm disease, one of which involved eating goat feces. They assumed that eating that would somehow make the worm come out. Well, yeah, it was probably used in a combination with other elements because as, as Joe and I explored in the tears of uh Ray episode uh, that dealt with the ancient Egyptian use of honey. They yeah. had a lot of they used a honey. They used honey and wax and a lot of their uh, medicinal uh, treatments. Uh, there was one example of crocodile feces being used uh, in contraceptives. Okay, and and feces also pops up in traditional Chinese medicine from time to time. Yeah, to say nothing of of modern fecal transplants. So I don't want to demonize. Oh, I wouldn't know. No, no. feces. And 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 let's be honest here. Like we're uh, while we're we're going to get into it, we're on the verge of eradicating the guinea worm, actually, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's taken us as a, as a species a very long time to kind of figure out how this whole process works and how to attack it. Yeah, because they're they're a hardy, adaptive organism. Yeah, nematodes themselves you can find them you can find them on mountaintops. You can find right, them they're everywhere. huddled around deep sea thermal vents. So the uh, g- nematodes as a whole are highly successful, and the guinea worm has also managed to to cling onto its position as a as a human parasite. I actually read that nematodes in general may comprise 90% of all life that's on the ocean floor and there may be up to 10 million different species overall, but when we're talking about the ones that quote unquote infect humans, uh-huh. there's only 138. <laughs> only 138 of the 10 million uh climb inside of us and and burst back out in somewhere or another. <laughs> I'm pretty certain I didn't follow the this uh, tangent, but as I was researching this and doing some searches, uh, occasionally I forget I'll reach one of those topics where you absolutely cannot search it with uh, without Google Scholar on. Oh yeah, because yeah. you start getting the all the terms. fringy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and this was one because I, I think I found more than a couple of instances where people were saying nematodes are actually aliens <laughs> who came to this earth. Um, and you'll find the same thing with like fungi. I bet that's a topic that uh, our producer Noel's other show uh, uh, stuff they don't watch oh, yeah. know should probably that's cover right or they, they might have covered before the idea that nematodes are aliens. I, I, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll buy it for now. <laughs> We've already connected it to the movie Alien and the movie The Thing. So from there, I mean, logically, it has to be an alien. Yeah, all we have to do is then connect these ancient um, aliens to the Old Testament. And uh, the, the weird thing about these, about nematodes in particular, 
is we have entire departments at universities that are dedicated to studying these things, but they're dedicated to studying how to kill them. Right. Um, because of the, the issues like guinea worm disease. Oh, uh, and then also a number of nematodes are also, um, crop, uh, concerns too. Yeah. So, yeah. So you have a definite health. And, uh, and food interest in eradicating them, not so much studying them and learning from them. Yeah, exactly. Or like where they came from and, and like what their influence is on our ecology. And I immediately started thinking about the recent episode we did on mosquito factories. Mm-hmm. When we started reading about how to eradicate an entire species like the guinea worm. I thought, well, what's the effect going to be on the local ecology? Um, and that doesn't seem to be something people are very concerned about in this literature. They want to get rid of this thing. Right. But it's as, worse as we'll explore, though, in this episode, it, you do see an unbalancing. When you start messing with right. the organism, the organism messes back. One other thing about the, the, the ancient history of the guinea worm, they show up in the Old Testament. That's how old they are, how long we've been dealing with them. Uh, and they're referred to as fiery serpents in there. Mm. I would imagine because of the burning sensation yeah. when they exit the human body. But, uh, instead of being thought of as a worm, they were thought of as a serpent. So, all right, that's sort of the background history of how long we've been dealing with it. Robert, how, What's the life cycle of this thing? So, like, let's talk about it as if, like, this was, like, a, a xenomorph infection, okay. okay? So, like, how's it get in, how's it breed, how's it reproduce, and then how's it get out? Well, luckily, this one's pretty pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm, I'm always interested in parasites, and I'm especially interested in those life cycle charts you always see yeah. for yeah. them when you look them up on CDC. Uh, or, or other sources. Like that's, that's like a standard graphic in any kind of, uh, explanation of how these things work. Yeah. And some of them are really Byzantine with multiple, um, you know, with, with multiple host organisms with different, mm-hmm. different phases and different branches. This one is, uh, is a pretty simple circle. Although it doesn't go directly into human beings, does it? No. It, uh, basically what'll happen, we're gonna start with the, the water here. So you're gonna have some compromised water. And the larvae have already infected tiny freshwater copepods. Yeah, they're small, but they're small enough that we can filter them out. We'll talk about that later. There's some strategies for how to do such a thing. Yeah, so you you end up uh, drinking in unfiltered drinking water that contains the copepods. Then the copepods wind up in your stomach, and that's when they uh, the, the larvae break out yeah. of their uh, their previous host. Then they tunnel their way through the stomach and intestinal walls, and they mature and breed inside the human abdominal cavity. So they turn your abdominal cavity basically into a sex cave. Right, yeah. And so we're talking about males and females because they're breeding. And the female is what's important here because that's the the version of the guinea worm that makes its way out of your body. Right. Once once the male has has finished... um, making sweet nematode love inside right. your abdominal cavity, yeah, it, it dies, dies in your abdominal cavity. Yeah. Man, so it's just all it knows is that copepod is a baby and then just the, the inside of our abdomen. Right. The, the rest of the, the, the universe is, um, is uh, just unknown to the male <laughs> nematode. Uh, the, but the fertilized female, because she's fertilized at this point, yeah. she migrates to the surface of the host's skin. And uh, they typically surface on the lower body, generally on the legs, or the feet, and they cause a painful, painful blister. Yeah. Um, and when the host dips this painful blister into the water for a little relief, the two, generally two foot uh, or longer female worm mm. possibly senses a change in temperature yeah. and bursts out into the water where she then excretes her larva 
to begin the cycle anew. The larva then infests copepods, and then someone drinks them in. Yeah, and one of the uh, biological facts I read about them as well that, again, was very strange and stunning is that apparently compared to the relative body size of a guinea worm, the uterus in a female is huge, and that's how it can store so many larvae and just spew them out. What it immediately made me think of is a show that we've covered on on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, The Strain. Oh, yes. And uh, sometimes the vampires in that will just like... They're basically the vampires in that. If you if you haven't seen it, you go listen to our podcast episode, but it's full of spoilers. Uh, they basically are created by by parasitic worms. Right. And uh, there's some scenes where the vampires just like vomit out these worms, <laughs> like just like spew like hundreds of worms out. And that's what the guinea worm made me think of. It's like if you were looking at the whole thing with a microscope, it would probably be like that. Yeah. If you if you dig wormy parasites and monsters, um, the strain is well worth checking out. Yeah. Like whatever yeah. your misgivings may be about any of the other elements in the show, I, I, in my estimation, they're worth putting up with. Yeah, the no, it's it, it. Yeah, I, I'm currently binge watching the second season, and uh, uh, I, I, I keep coming back for the monsters and the worms. All right. Well, speaking of coming back for the monsters and the worms, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will break down how this life cycle affects the human host how it manifests in the form of guinea worm disease. All right, we're back. So, okay, so we've described how the guinea worm uh, infects a human host, how it pops out, but what are the, what's the impact on us? What's the impact on our bodies? And and also, like, human society as it's infected by these things, right? So the, the entire human portion of the life cycle here that we've discussed takes about a year. Okay. And after a year, that's when you begin to experience symptoms as a host. And the typical symptoms are fever, itching, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, dizziness. So, yeah. you know, these can be you know, bad, but this is nothing like super crippling at this point, right? Right. But think about it like... You have no idea what happened because it's been a year since you drank that. Yeah. So you just all of a sudden start feeling terrible. It could be that those are all symptoms of, I don't know, like having a bad uh, flu right. rather than the itching. Yeah, it seems like it's harder to put one and two together yeah. right, in terms of when you might have picked up uh, the infection. Sure. Now, if this weren't bad enough and it's pretty bad already, uh, the pro- the real problem here is a secondary bacterial infection uh, commonly uh, results in painful disability that can mm. disrupt the person's ability to work, to attend school, to care for family members. And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, this disability typically lasts eight and a half weeks, but it can sometimes prove permanent. So this is where yeah. we get into the just really horrific uh, aspect of guinea worm disease because it, it takes you out of, I mean, at least for eight and a half weeks. Can you imagine just being... Being crippled, unable to to work, right, care for loved yeah, ones, yeah. uh, etc. For for that space of time, um, and this this is a point I really want to hammer home before we dive even further into it. The Guinea worm disease is currently only occurring in the poorest ten percent of the world's population, mm-hmm. and that's because they don't have access to clean drinking water or modern health care. Um, so, not only is it a symptom of poverty of being poor but it itself causes poverty through the disability that we're talking yeah. about here if you're out you can't work for eight and a half uh, sorry yeah eight eight and a half weeks 
uh, well, that's going to impact your livestock, your farming, right? Which is how most of the people in these areas are making a living. And I also want to emphasize on the burning that we talked about, right? We mentioned mm-hmm. the fiery serpent. So it, it, I mean, I haven't had this before, but the way that it's described is literal burning as if like you're on fire or something, which makes you, the host, want to go to the water. And you're talking specifically about the blister here. Yeah. And the blister, 80 to 90% of the time forms on the lower part of your body. So all you have to do is put maybe the blisters on your foot, put your foot in some water, uh, we believe that it's because the nematode senses a, this temperature change of the water. That's what causes it to burst out. I was immediately thinking like, oh, I, I wonder if like one way to do this is just like put your foot in like a bucket of ice mm-hmm. and and the worm will just like come out. But clearly that's not the case because the actual removal of these worms is man, this is some grisly stuff. Like this is one of those episodes where I get like a little ugh, like grossed out to remove the worm. It's not only very painful, it's also time consuming. It's not like you can just take a pair of tweezers and yank this thing out. It's two to three feet long inside your body. Uh, so then the other, the other problem here is that if it breaks during the removal, the remaining part of the female worm will withdraw back into the human body, degrade, and that's going to cause even more pain and swelling. It will then spill its larvae into your tissues, which can lead to more infection and even possibly death. So here's how they remove these worms. They they get the the uh top end out of the blister and they wind that around a piece of gauze or a small stick and they manually extract it slowly. And when I say slowly, I don't mean like an hour or two. It can take days or weeks to get one of these things out of a human body. And without proper care, the worm wound itself can become infected by bacteria like you, you you mentioned before. So you've not only got to worry about the bacteria that can possibly happen from it just bursting out, but then there's the potential infection that comes if it breaks while you're pulling one out, and then there's the potential infection of just not having the wound cleaned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of complications. These can result in all kinds of uh, post-symptoms, boils, lockjaw, sepsis, and more. So the disease causes severe disability, so much so that when uh, they've people like the Carter Center have done the math on this, they've figured out that it's worth millions of dollars each year in farm work that isn't done because of people that are infected by this. So it's difficult to move around because of the pain. Subsequently, they can't do their work. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, it doesn't kill these people most of the time, but it's fairly traumatizing both to their lifestyle and physically. And I would imagine mentally. All right. So let's talk about the war on the Guinea worm. If you go back to, uh, the 1980s, um, back say around 1986, you would find a, a, a pretty bad situation yeah. in terms of, uh, Guinea worm infection, 21 African and Asian countries at the time, we're experiencing a combined 3.5 million cases of an, of guinea worm infection. So the CDC launched the guinea worm eradication program in 1980, and the Carter Foundation soon took the, the, the lead on yeah. this war. And we should mention, we're here in Atlanta recording. The Carter Center's just down the road oh, yeah. from us. Uh, I drive by it every day on my way to work, and... Uh, in grad school, spent a lot of time over there and in the Carter Library um, because I was studying uh, 
presidency and, and rhetoric. And one of the things I really wanted to mention here, I don't want to be political, but uh, Jimmy Carter's post-presidency work is oh, yeah. absolutely stunning and inspiring. Like if every president left office and did like he did, I think it, it would just be like a, a, a huge role model to people going forward. I mean, he's been building houses, yeah. he's fighting guinea worm. He's even vowed to to make sure that the last guinea worm dies before, before he, he does. Yeah. And, and he's been diagnosed with cancer in the last like two years. Right? Well, I think he beat that. He's in he? remission, I yeah. believe. Yeah, but uh, even cancer can't stop him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and and I just want to point out too, one of the things that I learned when I was doing research over there, his farewell address uh, when he left the presidency is pretty interesting because he basically spells out all the things that he went on to do for forty years after uh-huh. he left office. Um, or almost 40 years. But he he, he kind of said, like, these are the things that are important to me. And then he goes out and he, he sticks to it, you know? Like, he's just, he's a real interesting guy. But uh, without the Carter Center, the we wouldn't be as close to eradicating uh, this being, this, this <laughs> some people call it an alien, some people <laughs> think it's an alien, the nematode guinea worm from uh, the face of the planet. I mean, they've really made it their mission and invested millions of dollars in this. Yeah, by 2015, eradication efforts, and we'll go into, we're going to get into some of the specifics of it uh, here in a second, but the, the overall eradication efforts have reduced infections by 99.99%. Yeah, to that's just, fantastic. Yeah, in, in 2015, there were just 22 cases in four different countries, and as of right now, uh, or at least as of earlier this week when I was researching it, only seven cases had popped up in 26. And that's despite the the dog thing that we're going to talk about later, the, the twist. Yeah. There's still only seven. Then those four countries, by the way, South Sudan, mm. Mali, Chad, and Ethiopia. So I, I want to hammer this home as well. This is considered, when it happens, if they are eradicated, it will be the Biggest medical triumph, one of them, in modern history. The only thing even close to this is when we ended smallpox. Uh, and it's estimated that the Carter Center has averted 80 million cases of guinea worm disease with their campaign. So, I, I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you know? when you think of the just the collective amount of suffering... Mm-hmm. That has been reduced by this effort. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, there's that. And then again, there's the part of me that has been doing this show for a while and thinks, yeah, but what about like we're going to eradicate an entire species off the face of the planet? I wonder what the results of that are going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, well, which we may be seeing now yeah. with their entry into canine. Exactly. So some of these key ta- the key tactics involved here in fighting guinea worm. And the, in these, uh, these tactics come from CDC and, and the Carter Foundation. Uh, the big one, of course, is managing the drinking water. Mm. That means making sure that, uh, that you have safe drinking water sources such as borehole wells and, uh, dug wells or springs with protective walls around them and caps to prevent, to prevent infected people with worms emerging from wading and contaminating the water. You want flowing water sources, water treatment, mesh to filter out those infected copepods. That's this is really one of the huge areas. So a lot of these yeah. efforts have been involved with just managing water sources. So I spent all day yesterday researching this for the episode, mm-hmm. and uh, we use a Brita filter, one of those like kind of things. You know, you fill fill it up in the sink, uh-huh. sits in your fridge, it filters, and then you drink the water. And I, I drink a lot of water during the day while I'm working. And I was just pouring it out and just thinking, like, oh, what what's in here? That like, like, there's the filter on this thing, but I don't know what what's in here that I'm drinking and swallowing and getting into me right now. And then I thought, 
you're in, you're lucky. You're in first yeah. world society. You probably don't have to worry about, uh, draconculiasis. Yeah. Now on the subject of filters, uh, one of the more uh, notable filter methods out there uh, is, uh, something known as life straw. Yeah. It's, uh, it was produced by Vestergaard, uh, in cooperation with the Carter Foundation. Work started on it around 1994, and this is basically, originally they were looking at a cloth filter okay. system. But then it evolved into a simple straw, like a, it's basically a personal, uh, water filtration system where you, you put the straw in the water, you suck the water up into your mouth, and it filters out the infected copepods. Okay. Um, and, and they've since evolved this into a number of different filtration systems, like, you know, a family size, yeah. larger implementations of it. And uh, I believe uh, Stuff You Should Know even did a, an episode on the live straw back in 2010. Oh, so is that can, right? Uh, check that out if oh, you want to okay. hear more about it. But uh, it's just one of several different uh, different efforts that have been put forth to, to combat guinea worms. I picture it as kind of like, um you ever have herba mate before in like the traditional way? Like herba mate is supposed to be presented in... um uh, like a specific kind of wooden cup, and then you take a metal straw, and it has a filter on the bottom. You're talking about green tea? Uh, it's a little different than green tea. It's, okay. it's um, I believe Brazilian or maybe hmm. maybe Argentinian. Oh, I'm not, in, I'm not up origin. on this at all. Oh, it's yeah. great stuff. I, I I like it quite a bit. But um, one year my wife got me because I like it. She got me the straw and the um, the the cup, the traditional cup that you put the stuff in. And I, that's what I think of when I think of the life straw. Although the, I don't think the filter in an herba mate straw is quite like uh, <laughs> powerful enough to get rid of copepods. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So on on top of filtration, vector control is important. Health education and community mobilization, like just educating people about what these things are and where the the risks uh, associated with them are to be found. Case containment is big. Um, A case of of guinea worm disease is considered to be contained when, first of all, the person is identified within 24 hours of the worm emerging. Mm. Um, the person has not entered any water source since the worm has emerged. The person receives proper treatment and case management by a local health provider. And within seven days of the worm emerging, a guinea worm eradication program supervisor determines that all the above criteria have been met and the case is truly taken care of. So the thing here that the Carter Center has really had to struggle with is that it's not about as much of like that they're going around like with flamethrowers killing guinea worms, right? right? Like it's not like that. It's more about community-based intervention where you're educating people and changing their behavior in these areas that are so heavily affected. So they mainly teach people to filter out their water and prevent transmission. They distribute things like the life straw we were just speaking of. Especially if you have an emerging worm, they want you to know, well, the last thing you should do is go near water because it's going to make it worse for everybody else in your community. Right. Um, and they have a number of partners. I just really wanted to quickly cover this because it's 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 a huge global effort that's gone into this. So the countries that we mentioned before, South Sudan, Mali, Chad, and Ethiopia, all their national ministries of health are involved. And they oversee elimination programs and have the staff that kind of go out and interact with the communities. Then the World Health Organization is also involved, and it certifies countries when they're worm-free. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they measure that, but there, mm-hmm. there's got to be some kind of quantification measurement. Uh, in place. I, I, don't, I don't know. They have analytics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they use. Um, and then we've talked about the CDC, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also here in Atlanta. Um, 
They provide technical assistance identifying the worms on site, right? Because sometimes worms burst out of people's blisters and they're not actually guinea worms. Remember, there's all those other nematodes that yeah. are capable of infecting you. Um, so there's that as well. And then UNICEF is also involved and they assist p- providing clean drinking water to these communities. A couple corporations have also been involved and they've donated more than $4 million of non-toxic larvicide to kill the copepods themselves that carry the larvae. Um, so they're basically like blasting the water with this stuff. Uh, and they've also donated nylon and then the life straws as well, the corporations, uh, with those filters to make sure that the risk of disease isn't coming from the natural water sources so much. And this work is so important for the following reason. This is a statistic on guinea worm disease. If you miss just one case, that can lead to 80 more infections the following year. Remember, it takes a year to gestate. Mm-hmm. So you miss one case, worm bursts into the water, spews out its larva, somebody goes along and drinks the water, and you've got 80 more cases a year later. And they yeah. don't know that they're infected until a year later when they start getting the blisters. It drives home just how important the persistence here is. Like I, yeah. The scenario I keep imagining is like a... A really well organized Roman legion with their shield walls and uh, and their spears going up against uh, like a an, an inhuman horde of monsters, right. you know. Yeah. And as long as they are persistent, if they keep uh, they keep they stay disciplined, they stay in formation, and they they have they keep they keep their focus on the long fight, they are going to persevere. They'll win. Yeah. 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 And it's and it's it, it, again like it's so complicated because it involves. You know what it is? It involves a lot of wicked problems, yeah. uh, including economic scale, national boundaries, health care, all that stuff, plus education. I'm sure that there's language boundaries here that are an issue as well. Uh, yeah. And then on top of that, <clears throat> as we're going to discuss after a quick break, mm-hmm. sometimes nature throws you a curveball. All right, we're back. Yeah, and so as Robert alluded to right before our break, uh, this is a case of the old Jurassic Park uh, <laughs> adage, sometimes life finds a way, yeah. uh, and, it, and it has. Uh, so it turns out that despite all of the work of the Carter Center and others trying to eradicate the guinea worm, we have just found, well, not just found, but it's it's just been identified as a major problem they are infecting dogs as well as human beings now. Yeah, I, I first read about this as reported by NPR, and uh, the report stated that the worms that have been popping up in dogs in Chad since since around 2013, sometimes to the tune of 60 or more parasites per host. Oh, oh okay. Uh, Let's stop for a second and think about that. That is, that's the thing out of all of this research that just made me absolutely go, oh, oh, my God. Um because, I mean, let, let's back up for a second. Each one of these worms is two to three feet long, or one, about a meter. Yeah, so this is not a small worm inside. No. It's a whole, like, spaghetti bowl of worms. The dogs are just chock full yeah. of, of Can guinea worms. imagine how painful that must be for these poor dogs? Ugh. And and uh, they're just, I mean, their body mass compared to ours. So I, I think I mentioned this at the top. One of the things we haven't been able to figure out from the research is... Do the worms grow at a rate comparative to the size of their host, right? So, like the, like the xenomorph example, right? Like, do they, are, are they smaller because they're in dogs? I don't know. The other thing is, from what we've read so far, only one female 
bursts out of a human host. In this case, they're finding 60 worms. This isn't 60 larvae, it's 60 worms. So it's just absolutely mind-blowing. It's it's ugh, heartbreaking to think about these poor dogs, too. Now, that's an important thing to, to keep in mind, too, about the, the dogs, is mm. that if you've ever... If you have traveled to other countries or you have, uh, you have family in other countries, uh, or family origins in other countries, you, you may realize that the way that dogs are treated yeah. in the United States is, is different from a lot of places in the world. Like, the right. here we treat them as, as members of our family and we really spend a ridiculous amount of time and energy and money on, on sustaining their health. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I talk about my dogs on the show sometimes. I'm very much a dog person. I've got two pit bull mixes. And I immediately started thinking about them when mm-hmm. I was doing this research, just thinking like, oh, I can't imagine if one of my dogs was infected with 60 of these yeah. worms, you know? And But your dogs are like they, they stay inside and then they go outside. And yeah. They're outside. We have a yard. You. Yeah. 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 Well, in many places in the world and especially in Chad, which is the, the main country of focus here. The dogs are a little more loose, you know, yeah. they're, they're running around, they're on their own, they may come back to the house, they're probably not sleeping in the house, they're not get, they're not being chained up or restrained in the evening, and that's just how, how life is. Yeah, they're more like, uh, like part of the farm, right? Like yeah. as any other, like, sort of agricultural animal would be on the property, they're, they're kept there to protect the crops, mainly from baboons, from what I was reading. Yeah, you could think of them as almost, I mean, I hate to throw feral around, you could almost think of them as sort of semi-feral because they kind of have their own community going on. Yeah. Um, they don't so much as live within human society as along adjacent. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw a lot of that, you know, like I grew up overseas and, mm-hmm. um, lived in Singapore and traveled around Southeast Asia a lot. And I, I saw a lot of stray dogs, um, but not dogs in this sense where they're like, they're part of the community. Like they serve a function. Right. Um, so I'm sure like in some cases, these people are invested in having these dogs on their property or keeping them alive. But at the same time, they're not building them dog houses or taking them to the vet and giving them treats and teaching them to sit. Right. right. They probably don't have extensive spay and neuter programs. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of the problem because if the if the worm the worms are in the dogs, then what are we doing to control the the dog population, the dog problem? That of course has been that is mentioned in some of the literature. The idea, like, well, what if we just wiped out all the dogs? Yeah, and but it, that would be cost prohibitive, <laughs> and also it's not a great like. Public relations. It's a pretty bad PR yeah. move on half of. I mean, I don't know what organization would be in charge of doing that. I suppose it would be one of these nations' health ministries. But uh, they've actually made it clear, like they're not going to do that. Euthanizing right. these dogs would be uh, not only would it be uh, ethically uh, problematic for them, but it's also it would be the largest what is called a culling project of. Any animal in history, there's over 10,000 of these dogs in these countries, and Chad in particular, I believe. So uh, they would have to kill 10,000 dogs to eradicate this. And then what we're going to get into this a little bit later, it's not just dogs. Um, so it's, it's mammals in general. So, but the dogs, the dogs live alongside humans. Yeah. They're, they're, in, they're in close proximity to humans. And you could probably make an argument that the, the dog population is an essentially invasive, unbalanced population, much like the humans. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, so instead of eradicating them, what are they doing? Well, 
the Carter Foundation is supplying people with collars, chains, and $20 incentive payments to tie their dogs up away from the water supply for a two-week period. And that's uh, enough time for the female worms to emerge and die on dry land. Yeah, and I would imagine $20 goes a long way uh, in these communities. Um, And the idea here is if they're chained up, they're not going to be able to contaminate the water sources and then spread the parasite all over again. So, yeah, so there is research that shows that it is in other mammals, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But the dogs themselves, because they're living, like we said, adjacent to these communities, they're more likely to infect humans and start this process all over again. Now, one thing we haven't really mentioned is how the dogs specifically are picking up the infection. Yeah. Uh, and this is something they they're know. not entirely sure of. Yeah. I mean, we could assume that it might be from a water source. However, there, there have been two guesses and this, this leads directly into the paper I'm about to talk about, uh, eating tadpoles mm-hmm. or eating fish guts, um, from these water sources as well. I think most dog owners and people who've been around dogs, they can sympathize that the dog is at an extreme disadvantage since most <laughs> dogs will We'll go drink just about any water. Uh huh. And, and it at least nose around in just about anything. It's oh, yeah. not eat it outright. My dogs, um, it's been raining here a little bit lately and the mosquitoes have been worse this summer than ever before. Mm-hmm. As we talked about in the mosquito factory uh-huh. episode. And my dogs will go around the yard and drink anytime there's like an indent in the dirt in a water, uh, you know, little pocket forms. My dog will drink that. And I'm just thinking like, oh, there's so many mosquito <laughs> larvae in that. But, you know, whatever. It's protein for them, I guess. Yeah. I mean, but it's biomass. Good it biomass. is. Yeah. So, OK, there is a paper published in 2016 uh, in the journal Emerging Infectious Diseases, uh, and it's called The Possible Role of Fish and Frogs as Paratenetic Hosts of Draconculus Metanensis. So that's the Latin term again for guinea worm. In this study, the researchers purposely fed these infected copepods that we've been talked about talking about, to fish and to tadpoles. Specifically, the fish were Nile tilapia and fathead minnow. Those did not develop larvae inside of them. But the tadpoles did harbor small amounts. So this was connected to the whole dog thing is, well, if they're eating these, maybe that's how they're getting them. They said... Uh, so the fact that the, the fish didn't actually demonstrate larva may not be indicative of the fact that the fish are incapable of passing them onto a host. It may just be that they didn't infect them with enough larva to do so. So what was their next step? This is also upsetting to me as an animal owner. <laughs> Uh, they then fed the fish and the tadpoles to two ferrets to test out. Now, I used to own ferrets. I had four ferrets at one time. Uh, one that was fed fish, it did not develop larvae. However, the one that was fed the tadpoles did have larvae in it. They did an autopsy on this ferret, and they found that, yeah, so the um, guinea worm larva passed on, and in the ferret it probably would have grown into a worm and burst out as it as it does in humans and now dogs. So we know the species can survive in tadpoles as hosts as well. Now, the study confirms their suspicions that mammals in the area in general have been getting affected with a worm. So we're talking about domestic ferrets, cats, dogs, as well as monkeys in the area, too. Um, They can all serve as hosts for the worm. Now, as we mentioned earlier... 
the dogs themselves are are more adjacent to the communities, so they're more of a concern. But according to uh, other research has been done, researchers have known for decades that dogs, leopards, and other mammals are in the area can acquire similar infections. But they thought it was from a different species of Draconculus, not the guinea worm. In the case of the dogs, researchers definitely think they're spreading the worms to humans, which presumably hasn't been proven yet with these other mammals we're talking about here. I mean, if a leopard's got a guinea worm in it, right? Like, we're not going to hang out next to a leopard. Uh, We're probably not taking, drinking the same water, hopefully, right? Right, and I'm thinking the leopard population would also be significantly smaller than your farm dog population. Mm-hmm. So this this is all rather concerning because it means that all these uh, these efforts this these this decade spanning war against the guinea worm is potentially in jeopardy because the worms have been able to find refuge in dogs, potentially yeah. in other animals as well, and therefore they're always going to have uh, an, a base camp from which to assault the human population again. Yeah, and the thing that's very concerning about this, as we said, they don't know where the dogs are getting these from, which mm-hmm. means that somewhere out there, probably in a water source, there's still lots of guinea worm larvae. Mm-hmm. So the dogs are acquiring it somehow. Where are they acquiring it from? How are they acquiring it? Where are these tadpoles that they might be eating, you know? Yeah. Or, or maybe they're passing to something other than tadpoles or fish. They just don't know yet. There, there still has, is a lot of research to be done here. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how this plays out, because th- does it mean that we can still absolutely break the cycle and therefore break the species? Right, yeah. Or does it mean we're never going to break the species? All we can do is just eliminate it from the human population right. by just remaining <laughs> remaining persistent. Like, basically, the, the Roman soldiers, in, in the metaphor here, they're going to have to just keep fighting forever. Right. And just not let their guard down. Or if we circle back to the thing as mm-hmm. our metaphor, they're just going to have to burn everything down to the ground <laughs> until it's just uh, Kurt Russell and Keith David just <laughs> hanging out with a bottle of whiskey, just waiting to see which one of them has a guinea worm that's going to erupt from them first. Uh, this is this is good that we've come back around to the, to the thing here because I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I've been writing a little bit about the thing for uh, the upcoming uh, Monster Science yeah. episodes. And I've been I've been thinking about that whole scenario of like what happens when the thing reaches the rest of the population. Right. It's it's proposed in the movie, if I remember correctly. And I believe there's a comic series that did this as well, where basically yep. it's like out of control biomass explosion of thing if it gets yeah. to a major population yeah. center, right? The the way they show it in the movie is Wilford Brimley has that little like Commodore sixty four like oh, yeah. projection and it's like it's like doot 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 and it shows like one vector like touched is another vector and then it's just like boom it just like spreads <laughs> super fast yeah it's like the re- the only reason why they were able to keep it at bay is because they were in an isolated area I, I guess the same could be said here right is that like because these are such impoverished nations that aren't really uh connecting or networking in the same way as first world nations mm-hmm. are uh the, that's keeping the worm from spreading even further as well huh Although we also, I mean, if let's say like on the off chance, like one of us got infected, uh, we would go to a doctor. The doctor would recognize what it was and we would be taken care of in like a hospital or something like that. Right. Like we have a healthcare system in place and they would know how to deal with it. Plus we have clean drinking water. 
Yeah, yeah. And also, like, your your first uh, method of treating the blister, just sort of dealing with the pain, would not be to go down to the local stream. You'd probably go to right. the bathtub. Yeah. Um, now, as far as the thing goes, I think when, when I try and think about it reaching the major population centers, I think that either, A, it's only going to do what it has to do to get hold of a spaceship and leave the planet. Oh, that's, yeah, that's its whole goal. Yeah, yeah so that's one possibility. Second possibility is that it just goes crazy and just takes over the biomass of everything. Or it reaches parasitic equilibrium, like ah. like other creatures in our world that infiltrate, say, an ant colony or some other kind of uh, uh, community or system. Yeah, you can only go so far with it. Yeah, you, you don't want to kill the host. Uh, we talked about this in the episode that we did on the, the, the physics and science behind um, vampires drinking yeah. blood, that there's only so far that vampires could go before they basically eradicated themselves. Right, So, and you see that in successful parasites. You can't yeah. be a successful parasite if you just wipe out the, the, the shit that you need for your journey. Yeah, yeah, now, that's a good point. And then back to the, the management thing. I wonder if there's a fourth scenario in which the thing infects the population at large. Yeah. And we realize, hey, we just got to manage the heck out of this. So we're going to implement buddy systems. Mm. You can never be alone. Yeah. And, or, or maybe it's like a only you have to be three people together yeah, at any say, given point. Cause there's that scene in the, in the prequel remake, uh, where like, doesn't it infect two people at the same time by just like smushing up against one person? And then that was like the big special effect from that movie where like two people were merged together and kind of crawling around like a scorpion on the floor. Yeah. They had to reverse engineer the, that weird corpse that they yeah, find. Yeah. Um, well, maybe it just means that, that every day, like twice a day, everybody at your work or in your home has to do that blood, you test. do the blood test yeah. where you burn their blood. Yeah. <laughs> If only finding guinea worm larvae was as easy as just burning yeah. your blood and making it uh, <laughs> jump up and attack you. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, if you have uh, thoughts about guinea worm or the thing, uh, write in to us. We get in touch with us. We're always happy to talk about that. And, uh, hey, if you want to learn more about the Carter Center's efforts, Carter Foundation's efforts against guinea worm, head on over to uh, cartercenter.org. Uh, they have a pretty, yeah. pretty awesome website. It's pretty easy to find, uh, well worth any supporting. of their programs that are ongoing. Yeah. Uh, and one other quick plug I want to mention here on the show. We are about to do, uh, one of our first live events, uh, with Joe, Robert, and myself. It's going to be at the upcoming convention in early September in New York City. So if you're in the area and you're a Star Trek fan, we are going to be at Star Trek Mission New York and we're going to be, uh, talking about planetary contamination while we're there. Yeah. So if you want to meet us, you want to come see the show live, uh, or maybe you've got friends who are just into planetary contamination and are also Star Trek fans that are going to be there, let them know. That's where we're going to be, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, and we may institute um, fiery blood tests. Yeah, to make I think, sure everybody I think that's how we'll kick it off, is yeah. have everybody do a blood test. That they, you have to use like a hot wire, though. You can't just use like a lighter or something like that. <laughs> uh, the other way to get in touch with us, of course, after you've gone to the website, after you've gone to the social media, is you can always write us the old-fashioned way at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
Thank you.